Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that helps to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Well, here we are again with Inside Cyber Diplomacy, the best podcast for cyber diplomacy. That's because I think we might be the only one. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, there are pretenders out there. <laughs> <laughs> Never. We're going to do a quick wrap up of the year 2022, which was sort of a dynamic year when it comes to cybersecurity. Of course, it's that's been true for probably every year since we've been doing this. But, yeah. uh, just like every year, we thought we turned the corner and now it's going to be a priority and then it doesn't oh, right. make it. But but I think this year, this may have happened. That'd be one of the things we could discuss. I think we said that a little bit in 2021. Turn the corner in what sense? Well, in the sense that, you know, it wouldn't be a also ran. It was where everyone gave oh. lip service to it being a real priority, but didn't really follow through completely. Yeah, and I give a lot of the credit to Chris Inglis and Ann Newberger and yep. Jen Easterly and all the people who work with them, who, who many are quite good, because they, they've rejected some of the old thought patterns, the memes, the memes well, of cybersecurity. Well, and I said this last year, but it will carry, it carries on this year. And also, I think that- You actually the, went back and reviewed what you said last well, no, year. No, I, I, I have a great memory, or at least I used to. <laughs> <laughs> who are you again? I think the other thing is that we're in a different place now for many reasons, but one is the senior people who don't do cyber every day basically understand at least the contours of this. So like Tony Blinken at State and Wendy Sherman at, at the White House, Jake Sullivan certainly does, and obviously Ali Mayorkas and others. So you have a built-in group who's not being spoon-fed for the first time, and I think that helps it resonate more and gets more support for that. But I think the number one thing, which we should... Obviously, we'll, we'll talk about that that has been prominent this year has been Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine and what that's meant, both in terms of cyber policy, but also kind of a more like minded commitment to going after bad actors that I think we've seen previously. We always saw it before, but I think it's been more robust in the past year. I hate the word robust, but I used it anyway. The other things are the NSC and Newberger's effort at ransomware, which yep, has absolutely. big applications. The work in the UN, which we can come back to. And then, of course, the ultimate release of the national strategy, which could once again be imminent. Yes, could be um, imminent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So breaking breaking news any, any any moment now. But yeah, this time they haven't told me end of the month. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, and a lot of that is due to the commitment of the folks that we've seen out there, but also to Chris Inglis, as you said at the top, who sadly is now leaving, although I think that was always his plan to leave once he got the new group set up, which he certainly has. And I, I suspect he'll leave after the strategy gets released. Yeah, that wouldn't be a surprise. It's unfortunate, but you know, no one can blame him since he's done so much over basically three decades. So yeah. Yeah. we're actually getting to the point where we have people who have decades of experience in this field it's still you can almost count them on the fingers of two hands but we have a cadre of people now and think of all the people at omb who work with uh, jen easterly yep. in the white house a strong cadre of people and that's maybe the best thing for the u.s when it comes to cybersecurity. yeah it's a maturing of this area where it's not just the 
one or two folks who know the stuff, but now it's more widespread. So both in yeah. terms of expertise, but also more widespread generally, which is good. So so where do you want to start? Let's start with Ukraine. Let's start okay. by making fun of I've been composing poems about Vladimir Putin, but they're all too rude to even put on Twitter. So no, Ukraine was, a, I think, a surprise on many fronts. The performance of the Ukrainians has been astounding, particularly in cyberspace. It's been astounding. And one of the things that they say, and this has a lot of weight, I mean, first of all, you know, there's some unique aspects of Ukraine. One is everyone is helping. When you try to say, how is this going to scale to other countries who are facing these threats, like countries like Costa Rica, for instance, which is another big story with the ransomware that's hit there, Ukraine has gotten an outpouring of help both by governments, but also by the private sector that I don't know if that can scale in other cases or not, but that, that certainly helped. The other is, as the Ukrainians like to say, we, you know, you guys do tabletops all the time uh, and you do these like cyberstorm yeah. exercise, but we've been doing this for the last like eight years yeah. since the first invasion. So, and it's real. We've been fending off Russian attacks. So that's helped them learn as well. So I, I, I do think it's been surprising in the sense that I think people weren't ready for them to be that good, either physically or in cyber. And I think that's been impressive. I, I think the other thing that's interesting is the narrative around this has kind of waffled, depending on who you talk to, where some say, well, cyber didn't play the role we thought it was going to play, and therefore maybe cyber is not that big a deal, which is just dead wrong, because you know the expectation cyber, you were going to use cyber to take down the infrastructure when you could use a missile, it doesn't make sense. And we did see cyber being used in this, especially both during mm -hmm. and before the conflict. And others, I think, rightly saying, look, this is part and parcel of conflict these days, and, and this is going to be something we're going to see all the time. So I think that has helped mainstream cyber more of an issue, despite this kind of false narrative that cyber wasn't that important. Well, I, I actually don't think it was that important, but in part, that was because the Ukrainians did such a good job of defense. And one thing that this highlights is there's linkages now that there weren't 10 years ago. Data localization seems like a swell idea. The first one of the first things Ukrainians had to do, Ukrainians had to do was wave all their data localization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it turns out location is not the key to security. I hope that doesn't come as a as a shock to the French. But it's what you do with the data, not where it's stored. And so there, it, Ukraine highlighted some tensions. It also highlighted the need for if you're going to do this in a war, you need to do it in a combined arms approach. You need to think of how you integrate it with other things. And the Russians, integration is not a word that people would use for the Russian military effort. Yeah, it's been much more haphazard. Look, there's lots of possible explanations, but I do think the the at the end of the day, what Ukraine has done is both shown the importance of resilience and what can be done there. Two, that how cyber is actually going to play out in the conflict, like going after the Viasat system in the beginning. And three, both in terms of the private sector, but also really galvanizing the like-minded who talked about how they're going to work together um, collectively to pose threats for years and done it sort of haphazardly, I'd say, in the past. They tried, certainly, but it wasn't really organized to, to a new level of, I think, coherence, uh, which I hope lasts, and that that's been good as well. One of the other effects of Ukraine for cyber was the effect on the negotiations in the UN, which surprisingly the progress has been in the third committee and in the work on the cybercrime law. The first committee where the action has been now for years 
seems to be stuck in a rut. Maybe that'll change. Yeah. I, you know, my earlier proposal was that we rename it the program of inaction. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of developments on both sides. On, on the third committee on the cybercrime convention, look, you know, that's being negotiated uh, uh, now. And you're right, it's been making some progress. However, the caveat is there hasn't been text yet. Yeah. Uh, the big battles there are going to be you know, the Russian view that everything that involves everything should be included in the, in the treaty and many other countries' views that it should really be about crimes involving attacks on computers and not every crime that uses a computer or quote-unquote cyber terrorism, this nebulous term that the Russians like to use. And, and that's still going to be a battle, I think. So we'll see. The next meeting is yeah. just around the corner in Vienna. And I think it's going to get a lot harder once you start having text. On the first committee side, you're right. I think it's been slow progress. Some progress, but slow progress. You know, this points of contact directory is what they're focusing on now. I think it's going to be modest. There's not going to be giant breakthroughs, I don't think, there. I mean, we'll see again. The program of action is interesting because that did get through. Kudos to the French for getting it through. But at the same time, it's sort of an empty vessel now. Almost everything was stripped out of it. So how multi-stakeholders participate, which has you know, been a hard thing yeah. in the first committee, not clear in, the, in this program of action, how it's going to be run. These are all things that need to be shaped. And so I think that's going to be one of the big stories for this year is how that happens, how not just the French, but other countries, the U.S. and others, guide that along, how other stakeholders guide that along. I think that's that, that's going to be a very interesting but and, difficult and, process. And, and to his credit, the Singaporean chair, building off the work of his predecessors, found a good way to incorporate the multi-stakeholder community. I mean, there are workarounds, but... Well, he did. He did. I mean, to his credit. Yes. To his credit, yes. But... On the other hand, Russia blocked 35 or 30 organizations. Ukraine blocked a couple yeah. of Russian organizations. So many of the, the big proponents for multi-stakeholder participation, including Microsoft and the Tech Accord and others, didn't get to participate. So, so you have to do side events. That's been the last Which thing. they did, right. And look, to me, it's more important to be on the floor and be able to talk to people on the sidelines than the formal participation. But... I think it's important to have both. And 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 I think having, having listened to the last round of multi-stakeholder presentations in the first OEWG, we're not missing a lot. Yeah, but but Jim, you could say that about state presentations in the OEWG. The 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 kind of speeches, the the set speeches often are not where the action is. You know this. It's really what the negotiations are, what the discussions are. Yeah what the side discussions are. I mean, occasionally you get something that's momentous or crazy or or helpful in those formal interventions, but mostly it's it's more pat, yeah. at least in my, my view. And so the other link development is the launch, finally, of the new Bureau at State. Yep. After, what, four years, three years of discussion? Look, I think, I think it's important that they finally create this. I mean, it was announced last year, I think in April, as I recall, or it was finally announced after the cyber diplomacy bill several times, didn't quite make it through Congress, made it through the House, but not the Senate. And various iterations that the Trump administration looked at. And finally, after some study, they came out with something I think makes sense. Now, the hard part is going to be the implementation of this. You know, it's, it's, it's easier to put things on paper, and I know there's some experience than do it. 
I think Nate Fick seems like a really good guy and someone who has not experienced as much in the international arena, but certainly has leadership experience, and that's going to be important. Yeah, I think there's a lot he'll have to learn. How they actually staff things, and we'll talk about this in a later episode, and how they go about it and what they prioritize, I think is going to be important. When you have all the different issues, including the security issues and the economic issues and the human rights issues together, there's always the possibility, and I think this has happened a little bit already, that you give one or the other short shrift because you can't pay enough attention to all of them and you need to. So so I think this is going to be, there's going to be some growing pains, but I think yeah. there's some good people there, certainly, and there's commitment from the highest levels from Tony Blinken and, and Wendy Sherman, which will help. So this is going to be it, a momentous year for them. It looks like a pretty strong team, but you know my new favorite saying is uh, you are what your record says you are. So these guys have two years to deliver something. Yeah. And that's, as you know, from diplomacy, two years is a really short time. It's a very short time. I, when I was a prosecutor, I thought two years was an eternity. Uh, and when I got, I remember the first uh, international thing I did was with the G8 and I, I expected things would happen overnight. They don't in diplomacy. They don't happen for a long time sometimes. That reminds me, one of the good things out of the cybercrime negotiations is apparently it's encouraging people to sign up to the Budapest Convention. So, that is interestingly true. Carrie Ann from OAS said this is something yeah. she's seen. And I, I've talked to the Council of Europe people and more and more are feeling, saying, okay, well, we, we can have both. We can do that. And so I think that's that's really good. Just back on the on the Bureau for one second. The other thing that I understand has happened and we, you know, we'll have to look at this, is that either in the NDAA, I think it was, or the probes bill, the Cyber Diplomacy Act in some form got incorporated. So um, I think it was the NDAA. So that means that it will have staying power. And look, you create a bureau, it usually has staying power, but having it in legislation yeah. means that yeah. it's hard for a new secretary to come in and change it. And that's good, I think. So, so you know, something to watch. Yeah, I uh, told the people at State that having done one or two of these big negotiations, two years is kind of the minimum, right? Yeah. Uh, to get anything. So they, they need to start now. And I think, I think they're on a good path. We'll see. Yeah, I think so too. There's a lot to do though. And there's a lot of challenges given where Russia is and, and China. Where, where would you place your bets? Would you put them on the UN or would you put them on the regional organizations? Well, I think regional organizations in the short term are going to have both more flexibility and more power. I think there is a chance of some breakthroughs in the UN, especially particularly on cybercrime. Even, even if you focus on specific items within the first committee, then maybe you can find a consensus. I mean, that, that's certainly what the chair is trying to do and hopes to do. So I don't think it's abandoned all hope for any of these processes yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But regional processes usually have more alacrity, depending on what region you're looking at. Certainly we've seen that, for instance, in ASEAN, where they very quickly had the ASEAN leaders affirmed the norms, which was quicker than I think any of us expected. I think that might still be the only regional organization that's done that. They've done OAS has work. done a lot, obviously. OAS has done a lot. The work on CBMs in the OSCE, the African Union has picked yep. up the pace considerably. So we're, we're seeing a lot of progress. And that might be, I, I get a sense that the center of gravity has shifted at least temporarily away from New York, away from Geneva. Well, and I think a lot of people, one of the things I do, as you know, is, is help run this global forum on cyber expertise. And a lot of people are focusing on, on capacity building, both the UN is and other and regional organizations are and others. 
you know, often they think it's a low-hanging fruit. It ain't that low-hanging, frankly. It's not that easy to do, to do right. But there's a great demand for it. I think there's a lot that can be done in taking the existing stuff we have and getting it more out there and getting more people to embrace it. And particularly like Africa with the African Experts Network we've helped set up. I think there's a lot of room for, for that going forward. So sometimes it seems like every fourth person in Washington has seen a draft of the cybersecurity strategy. <laughs> I, I know you have. Um, what What do you think? I, I actually liked it. I saw it a while ago now, probably six weeks or seven weeks ago. Yeah. So who knows what the interagency has done to it since then or what the whole process has done or even with the White House process. These are all things that I know from experience things change. However, I, I, I thought it was good in a couple of ways. First, the, the first thing indications were that it was only going to be domestically focused which made no sense. I mean, that was just ludicrous. And it's not. I mean, it's broader. At least the one I saw was broader and appropriately so. The second thing was that, you know, it takes a much harder line leaning toward, hey, you know, we've been talking about incentives for 100 years, not 100 years, but it seems that way. And they're not working. So we need to also think about both carrots and sticks and how we actually mm-hmm. may have to do some some hard issues around regulation, which has always been a dirty word. But yeah. I think people are realizing, particularly in light of things like ransomware, that we just can't we just can't let things go on the way they have. It's not sustainable. So ransomware might count as one of the successes for the administration. And I, I think so. And has driven this to a fair extent. But getting yeah. What is it, 37 countries? Uh, I think that's right. From all over the world, and not just the usual suspects either. Yeah. I mean, countries who are also kind of uh, non-aligned sort of countries, or at least you know, countries like India and Brazil and others. I mean, it's been a very interesting, South Africa, a very interesting group of countries. And they made progress. Last year, we talked about the task force that Institute for Security Technology set up that I co-chaired. They issued our report just before Colonial Pipelines. And one of our no- number one messages was, you got to take this seriously. You got to have a sustained effort. You can't just do a one-off and done. This has to be a real national security issue. And to their credit, Anne and the group there has really done that. And I've talked to, I'm sure you have too, talked to a lot of other countries who've been playing in this. And they're really pleased with it. I mean, they really think it's making a difference. Now there's a lot, you know, ransomware has not gone away. You, You saw that thing where our friend Rob Joyce first said, well, it's like declining. And this is, well, maybe it's not declining, you know. Hard to get a a good picture on it. It's not declining, but at least, well, let's let's leave that aside. You know, one of the things that is noticeable to me, and I wonder if you see it as well, a lot of countries care about cybercrime in a way they don't care about some of the more traditional security issues. Well, I mean, look, a lot of countries are faced with cybercrime as a real present danger for them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't really think about some foreign country stealing their intellectual property is a major danger yet. It will be in the future for them. Or they're not the target of a lot of disruption. Now, with ransomware, what we've seen is even small countries. You you look at the map of where ransomware targets are, they're all over the place. And we've seen with Costa Rica, going back to that example, them just being almost taken completely offline because of that. So I think as countries, especially developing countries, but not just developing countries, look at this, you know, cybercrime is a thing that they see every day. And the more esoteric threats that we often focus on 
are not things that are as much of a priority for them. Doesn't mean they're not important. The norms and other discussions are important, but cybercrime is what they're seeing. And I, I understand that. And the linked debate is one that came up after the agreement in 2015, which is, okay, now we have norms. How do you enforce them? Yeah. Right? And so I think the imposition of consequences and what that looks like will be one of the topics for the next year. Yeah. And that's another one we said last year. And I'm very much supportive of, of having more accountability for violations. I think if they're not, it's just words on paper. That's a difficult thing to get out of the UN. So when you talked about what things are likely to come out of the UN, I don't think accountability is one they can, for political reasons, when you need a consensus, they can do easily. Doesn't mean they can't try, but I think it's going to be hard. But that's where I think you're going to have to see more both individual and collective action. Paul Nakasoni, Ann Newberger, Matt Olson, Lisa Monaco, who's very familiar with this stuff, they've done a, a great job of mapping out what it's possible to do within the contours of international law and sovereignty concerns. So we've seen the FBI have some real successes. Cyber Command yeah. has some real successes. Yeah. That might be one of the things to watch next year. I think that's true. I still argue for more, not transparency about individual operations while they're happening, obviously, but more transparency about what we're doing generally and how we're doing it. I don't think that hurts us. I don't think everything has to be as veiled as it is, where you, you learn about an operation only because of a leak to the press, an intentional leak to the press often, rather than saying, here's what our doctrine is, here's how we're trying to do it. I mean, the UK has been much more upfront about yeah. what they've been doing for a couple of years. So so I think that helps us. I, I do think, Jay Healy has mentioned this before, you know, the question is, well, what are the metrics? You know, How do we know we're succeeding? I think there have been some successes, but has it changed the game and how? And then that would argue, well, we need to more X or Y. And I think we still haven't gotten to that level. It hasn't even been a year that we've been doing this. And sure, sure. And I think some money back. Let's let's yeah. see how it plays out. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I'm I I think it's right to give them a chance. And I I suppose I have some confidence that the White House is trying to, you know, and maybe even Congress is trying to monitor what this is rather than just simply saying, okay, we're making a difference. You need to you need to do it. But I look, I I support us using all of our tools in a collective way and working with our allies even more than we do now. So my bet is that, and the McCarthy election is a good indicator, that we're not going to see anything out of Congress in 2023. You think that's fair? Is there anything? What more can they cram into the NDAA? Look, that's one of the few bipartisan things, but everything becomes partisan now, especially as we're running into the next election. I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, when we saw critical infrastructure standards, we talked about ransomware and critical infrastructure going down and whether that means you needed a more regulatory approach with at least critical infrastructure or reporting. We got some of those the last year. The reporting one's a big one, right? Um, yeah. Uh, it has to be implemented, but that's a big one. We spent 20 years arguing about that. And we finally got that. So that's a big one. Are you tracking what the European Union is doing? Yeah, they have lots of things. They have NIST too. They have, they, I mean, of course, they have all the things that are directed at you know U.S. companies because of their concern about innovation. No, 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 us, no But that's no, different. No, no. Chris, that's different. When, when we do it, it's protectionism. When they do it, it's defending sovereignty. <laughs> so, but they have done some things and are continuing to do things where they're trying to beef up things like reporting and they're trying to beef up things like their voluntary certification program they did before. They're doing a lot of stuff. And 
I think the U.S., I remember testifying a couple of years ago before the Commerce Committee about this, where they think that, oh, can't we get them to change it? No. If you want to be a leader in this, if the U.S. wants to be a leader, and this is where Congress has to come in, on privacy, on reporting, on all these things, you got to do it. Because otherwise, we have global companies in the, in the U.S., and they're going to follow global rules. So the yeah. EU is going to be both the first mover and the shaper. And if you don't like that, get off your butts. That's a hard to do in the kind of partisan environment we have. What have we missed? We didn't talk about the efforts to improve software. We talked a little bit about regulation. The SBOM. NIST, SBOM, yeah. NIST. Yeah. Uh, I, let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, there, there's a lot. I mean, the executive orders around SBOM, software bill of materials and other things, I think those have been very good. That's a long-term effort. The U.S., we should use our purchasing power to try to, to change the game in cybersecurity. That that makes sense. So I, I think that's been good. I think there's been more attempts to work with the private sector through these JDAX and other things uh, that DHS has been working on. I think that's been a beneficial thing, certainly. What did you think uh, of the announcement from a European insurance company that they needed to back away from cyber insurance? Well, there have been two interesting announcements. One, Lloyd saying that they weren't going to cover necessarily, it's much more nuanced than, than what was reported, that they weren't going to cover nation state stuff because it was, or, you know, their their consortium is an act of war sort of thing, although it's more nuanced than that. And the other was what was just happened recently where they said, who was it? What was the insurer? Was it ING? I can't remember which one it was. I can't remember. Was it, it was a big one that said, yeah. We think the next thing that we're not going to be able to deal with is cyber. And the CEOs yeah. of that, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, I I'd like to hear more about that because I think that might have been an overreaction. Certainly, there's ways. You know, insurance companies know how to limit their losses. They know how to write policies. They know how to not cover everything. They know how to build in. And this is what's been missing, Jim, which I think is changing now because of ransomware again because they didn't want to make these big payouts is everyone thought that insurance would be this this great panacea that would raise the game, that people would do better because of underwriting standards and, and it would force better hygiene, and it didn't happen. But now the underwriting standards are changing and I think becoming stronger, and I might have that effect a little bit. Yeah, it would be. It's, it's a part that doesn't fit well into the diplomatic agenda, but getting countries to agree on common standards for cybersecurity would be a, a big step forward. Yeah. And the other thing just globally that's happening is these discussions really are permeating everywhere. We have a larger group of cyber diplomats than we've ever had before. There's several new countries who have added new ones or replaced the old ones and kept it or made their 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 mm. groups bigger, which is good. You know, the US obviously is uh, with a new bureau, but others have. There have been some significant departures too. Toby yeah. and leaving Australia. Hard uh, to replace. Yeah. Hard to replace. I mean, look, all these people get replaced and you get good people. That There's some happen. good people. That was one of the things that amazed me at the OEWG is that having, like you, watched this for a number of years, there's a deep bench of talent in many countries now that you would in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. So this has become a global diplomatic skill. Yeah, it, it has. And I think more and more it's being recognized. Look, I think one of the great things of the State Department, I remember when I was at the State Department, we tried to get FSI to run a course. We ran our own, basically. And I think I got the sense that they weren't sure this thing was really going to last, right? Now FSI, there's a sanctioned FSI course on cyber for 
State Department people, that's great. I think a lot of other countries are looking at how to to mainstream this in their foreign ministries. That's great. How have we done an entire podcast without saying the word China? <laughs> we said it a little bit in the beginning. Well, we can move to China now. So yeah. we yeah. can summarize it. China bad. There. Okay. Yeah. Now and so thank you for tuning in. <laughs> Go ahead. Look, I think Russia is is a clear threat because people understand it and understand. And, and you you said how did this all affect the UN? Saying, I mean, there is this undercurrent where people are saying, look, if if you have countries like Russia who are not going to obey the rule of law and things like accepted norms, not even in cyberspace, just generally, what makes you think that they're going to follow these cyber norms? And that's not a bad analysis. Mm-hmm. For China is still interesting. The U.S. and China relationship still bad. I think it's, you know, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no real formal dialogue, cyber dialogues. There may be things in the background, but nothing, nothing I don't really think so. yeah, uh, yeah. strong. The rhetoric back and forth is pretty strong. China has been flexing its muscles in ways that it hadn't before, certainly. Also trying to advance its agenda around the world, too. With some success. With some success, yeah. Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia. So we have more points on the board than we do in those places. Well, and I think think it goes back to my favorite phrase from Rob Joyce, which is Russia is like the hurricane and China is like climate change. I mean, China has been back doing their thing, pushing their agenda. And I think Russia has become more marginalized or or at least isolated because of the Ukraine and, and venues like the UN. And China hasn't. I mean, China hasn't. China still has a lot of pull and a lot of commercial pull too on even on Europe. So I think it's going to be a very interesting year to watch and how that shakes out. You remember a time when China sort of sat in the back bench and let Russia do all the heavy lifting. That's not true. And that's not been true for years. China's been out front and I I expect we'll see more of that this year. So that changed in 2013 when they started sending. 2013 was the last year they sent a relatively junior person. 2015, they sent a very senior Chinese diplomat with immense skill. So I respect them a lot, but we're clearly on different sides. Yeah. And I think that the question is, are there, like we've done traditionally, try to find places where we can collaborate or at least agree on something. And I don't know. We'll we'll see how that works out. I mean, there there may be some areas, but it's going to be, it's not, you know, it's not an easy time right now. You know, then you look at the landscape of international organizations too. You have Doreen Bogdan, who's been now elected as the head of the ITU. I guess she started officially her term. Today, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so she's a U.S. person, but she's, you know, she's an ITU person. She's been there for 28 years yeah. or something. I expect you'll see more transparent leadership out of Doreen than we've seen in the past, which has always been a complaint of where you ha- don't really know what the ITU is doing sometimes. And I think another issue is going to be how we have these discussions worldwide. You know, they're still, they're still kind of fragmented I still see cyber as being somewhat isolated, not fold into the larger national security discussions around the world. People don't know how to do that. So that's if there's a goal for us the next the next few years, that might be one of them. And I guess if I, you know, I, I look at all these things and turn to predictions, I I do think for the reasons we said earlier, this is going to be a pretty big year in cyber. Because I think Ransomware is not going away. We're going to continue to see Ukraine, unfortunately, go war go on. We're going to see more countries using cyber capabilities, I think. We're talking about them. 
we'll see what we see in the UN. Things will happen. Now, whether they reach any conclusion is a different issue. And one thing we can promise listeners is that we will invite Toby and Michelle for valedictory remarks. At last, they can say all the things they wanted to say and couldn't. So it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. Now that will be fun, and, and we certainly will do that. And and you know, I think we've had some success even getting people who are still in their job to say things, which is good. And we want to have those people on too. This is not an area that's waning. I think it's just picking up. So uh, encourage your friends, your relatives, maybe not your relatives, but your friends and the people who have any interest in this to to tune in because I think this is going to be- hey, Was that a commercial? Yeah, that was a commercial. That's a spot. 